This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. My name is Robert Rim, Managing Editor for Arch Street Press. I'll be your host today. Today our guest is Nick Stellino, television chef and cookbook author. Nick was born and raised in Palermo, Sicily. In addition to his successful career as a chef, Nick's been featured on multiple television series and has published 10 cookbooks. His cooking shows air on public television stations throughout America and are also syndicated in Latin America. Nick is also a major supporter of the American Red Cross, whose mission is to prevent and alleviate human suffering during emergencies by mobilizing volunteers and the generosity of donors. Each year, Nick dedicates months to raising donations for the organization. Nick, it's great to have us, uh, you with us today. I'm very honored to be part of it. Thank you for asking me. After growing up in Sicily, you came to America at 17 and eventually had a successful career as a stockbroker on Wall Street. What prompted you to leave Italy for America? Well, I believe I always wanted to come to America for as far as I can remember into my childhood. I remember telling my friends that one day I will go to America. Um, my wife uh, doubted that such uh, intentful purpose could exist in such youth. <laughs> and, uh, one of the trips that we took to Sicily about five years ago, uh, she met some of the friends that I went to kindergarten with. So these are people that, just like me now in their 50s, remember me from my old days in school. And each and every one of them told them, oh yeah, his nickname was Americano. Even when he was a little boy, we used to call him Nick the American. And that's exactly how it went down. And what challenges did you face transitioning to America at a formative age? The most difficult challenge, I think, was uh, primarily uh, the language, because it took me a while to develop a certain modicum of elegance in, in the usage and the syntax of the English words in a way that could express my thought as it came through my head. The second part was, uh, uh, unfortunately for me, the fact that for as much as I loved America, there's only so many hamburgers and hot dogs that I can have. <laughs> and, uh, it, was, it was horrible. I'm telling you, in the 1970s on the West Coast, in the small town where I ended up in Eureka, California, uh, there were not what I would call great Italian-American restaurants. Actually, it was so horrible that I wrote my mother and said, Mom, I got a problem here. I don't know how to do this thing. It's incredible. She says, don't worry about it. I'll put down a few recipes and I'll send them to you, which she did. Only my mom did not write the recipes like a, I write the recipe, like two teaspoons of that. Three. She would write it as if it was a conversation. To give you an idea, uh, I, the recipe that dealt with tomatoes, so she, you get fresh tomatoes, you peel them nice, you put them on the side, you saute some garlic, some olive oil, then you add a pinch of butter. But when you add uh, the pinch of butter, then I want you to put a pinch of salt. But remember... So when you think of salt, think of me, not Zia Cicina. She's fat. She's got big fingers. She makes everything so salty I can't stand it. And that's how she actually wrote the whole book. It was like a comedy routine. And I would remember laughing, crying, and cooking at the same time. So that's how I started. And, and how did you specifically uh, overcome these challenges? When we were talking earlier, uh, you mentioned circuitous route and, and uh, kind of torturous things. Uh, how did you get over them, literally? Um, I have an innate need to win. 
I cannot control it. It controls me. Whatever it is that takes me down, I need to win. Mm -hmm. I need to surpass whatever it is that is taking me down. I don't understand why I do it. I cannot justify it. I cannot explain it. There is no nobility in, uh, in this open admission. But I cannot accept the fact that I've been beaten because I've given up. Uh, I remember in college uh, being shamed by one of my professors who read aloud my composition on whatever it was the theme that we were asked to write about. And my English was so ridiculously bad that uh, he basically uh, read it in front of the class telling everybody what not to do. <laughs> I swore to myself, for as long as I should live, I should never have a moment like this again and I should learn to speak English better than what I do when I speak Italian. And somewhere along the way, I got a little bit better. And what drew you to Wall Street initially? Money. Okay. That was, uh, a, that was a quick, short answer, and we'll go on to the next question. <laughs> no, it, it, was, it was true. Uh, yeah. I wanted to make money. I'm, I'm a very good salesman. Yeah. Um, I was able to have a very nice life earlier on uh, through the gains that the profession gave me. But in Sicily, there is a proverb that says, money makes a wonderful slave, but a horrible master. Mm -hmm. And it's a small proverb seems something that old people say almost has no meaning until you discover what it's like to be a slave to the money that you earn. And I came to realize in no uncertain terms that where I thought I was the master, in the end I was the slave. And just like a slave in uh, the Empire of Rome that wanted to get out of the Colosseum and, and, and fend for himself somewhere else to find his freedom and his joy of life, I did the same thing. And what age did you decide to to switch to pursue a culinary career? Uh, 33. 33. Yep. And, and what was it like? Uh, you're in your mid-30s. What was it like shifting careers and then ultimately finding success as a chef? Well, it wasn't planned that way to begin with. And what did happen, I think I had a, a, a mini nervous breakdown because uh, my uncle Giovanni, who next to my father was the most important male figure in my life, and uh, passed away. Uh, I went to see him a few months before he passed away. Actually, uh, my family in the 60s got spread out all over the world. We have people in Switzerland, France, Germany. Uh, we have some relatives in Australia. We have some relatives in uh, South America. Many of them came here to the United States. Uh, I didn't get to meet them until many years after I arrived. And I remember my uncle Giovanni, surrounded by all the cousins, uh, holding me back when everybody was leaving the room. And he looked at me in the eyes and he said, uh, you should never be like me. You should not die like this without having followed your dreams. Now, the man was packed with morphine, and God knows if he really knew what he was saying or not, but what he said, and he looked at me in the eyes, I thought he was very clear. He had all his wits about him, and he cut like a blade right through my chest. I, was, I remember standing there and saying, how do you know that I feel this? How can you see this? Then when he passed away, I think, is when all of these emotions that I had packed inside just came up like a river in full. And I said to myself, I remember looking at the stock trades going right over my desk and thinking, and this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I remember going to work every day thinking about the weekend, thinking all I have to do is this, and then at this time I finish, and then I go home. And I said, this is not the life that I want. And I believe that that was the beginning where I made this choice in my head that my future was going to be different. Hmm. And the conversation that you described with him really reveals empathy, things being unsaid. 
Have you always been aware that people can communicate in this way, even when things are not, in fact, said and, uh, said and laid out? I put an enormous amount of importance in the unspoken word and the details of a person. I look at the person the way he or she walks, how they dress themselves, how they talk, how they use their hands, the jewelry that they wear, how they choose to express a thought, how they tell a story, how they self-aggrandize themselves or how they put themselves down. I believe that the most important language is not the language that's spoken. It's the language that is left unsaid and it's only demonstrated through a few key signals. So I've always been a huge believer of that. Mm. And how did you become involved with television, Nick? Uh, by mistake. I was in the <laughs> restaurant uh, as a chef. I finally, after uh, several years uh, in, uh, in the restaurant business, starting out from the low end and eventually making my way up to chef, this was the first restaurant that I run as a chef. Uh, and on this one Sunday that we had off, my wife and I went out for dinner at what was at the time a very unique and high-end restaurant here in Los Angeles. Uh, and I remember that the reason why I wanted to go is because I just got my Motorola flip phone, uh, which I could uh, uh, showcase to everybody in the restaurant how cool it was to flip it and say, yes, I'm important, I have this phone. Mind you. I'm taking you back to the early 90s now when these things were somewhat impressive. Well, the phone did ring, and the first call that I got was from the boss at work who somehow, given his lack of uh, social skills, had managed to insult every worker on the line in the kitchen. Uh, and uh, they basically walked out of the restaurant with about 150 people waiting for their dinner. So I remember putting the phone down, looking at my wife, says, if I don't go and give this guy a hand, uh, we are not going to have a job to go back to tomorrow. Uh, so we cut the dinner uh, short. I went uh, to the restaurant. The owner was, uh, in his typical way, completely drunk and gone and God knows where. I put him to sleep on the couch in his office. I stepped outside. I looked at all the guys. And all these fellas were from all over the world, mostly Latinos, uh, from Argentina, Guatemala, several of them from Mexico. I say, look, he is him, and you know me. I am not him. But if we don't go back in there and these people walk out of here, we are not going to have a restaurant to work at. For tonight, I need you to be my friends. You need to help me. I will fix this for you guys later. Uh, my wife uh, took over the front of the restaurant, and uh, while she was taking reservations, a call came from uh, J. Walter Thompson Agency out of New York, who was sending out a scout looking for an Italian-speaking chef to feature on their uh, ragu tomato sauce commercial. Of all things, right? Of all things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And my wife says, oh, I have the perfect guy. I'm married to him. He's colorful. He's fantastic. He's handsome. So I say, look, we're doing the last shoot tomorrow. Can he be available, uh, say, around 10 o'clock? So my wife comes totally excited in the kitchen. She says, oh, there's this crew, television, there's some big shots in New York. I forget their name, but they're coming. They want to see you. All you have to do is just be yourself. Now, what you need to know is that I was a tremendously famous uh, punkster. I, I played jokes on all my friends who were chefs. So I knew that this was a joke to be played on me. I knew that my wife was being set up, and she had bought a hook, line, and sinker. So the next day when the crew came, I said, wow, these guys spent a lot of money. They got real cameras. Everybody's dressed up in suits and everything. Holy moly. Well, if that's what they want, I'm going to give them a show they'll never forget. <laughs> I gave them the most crazy thing. I was jumping on top of the stove from the table. I, I, basically, I was like a man possessed. Uh, and I thought, 
take this now. <laughs> I want to see how funny you are. And uh, four days later, we got a call and say, we would like to fly to New Jersey, uh, to New York. Our client is in New Jersey. We want to take a test of the commercial with you. Send it to the client. And if they approve, you're going to be the new ragu man. And that's how it went down. That's it's too funny, Nick. And you know, you really do seem born to do what you're doing now. How has your experience been sharing your passion for food and cooking with a public audience? In, there is a, a way that you need to understand that explaining things in a simple, uh, easy uh, way encourages people to try things that otherwise would make them afraid. Uh, my greatest specialty is not in being the greatest chef who ever lived. I can tell you there are many and plenty of them far better than me. But what I do possess, really a world-class skill, is empowering people with the belief that not only they can be as good as me, but they can be better than me. And empower them with clear, simple, friendly instructions to make them see, make them believe that this that I'm teaching them can be done with simple tools that they have in their kitchen already, with simple ingredients that they can find at the supermarket, and when I see them create something of mine, even if better than me, it gives me joy knowing that a little bit of my Uncle Giovanni, my Nonna Dele, my uh, Mamma Massimiliano, my Father Vincenzo, will live forever with them in their home every time they prepare one of my recipes. That's wonderful to hear. And how did you come to found Nick Stellino Productions? What are your goals for the company? I believe that, that we are one of the most important uh, moments of television as we know it. Uh, I think that the way in which television is distributed is now opening itself up to smaller players such as myself to be able to make a consistent and significant difference. Uh, the way of the past of cable, of delivery via antenna, uh, even the dish is soon to be nothing more than a piece of antiquity that will cease to exist. I believe that everything from news to content uh, such as documentaries, uh, movies, uh, uh, film, uh, TV shows will be distributed through the concept of on-demand. In the concept of on-demand, the ability to be able to film a story in such a way that will have the same relevance on the small screen of the telephone as well as the big screen of a 70-inch high-definition television in your living room will create the ability of very few and skilled people to be able to communicate visually with the end user. But the ability to maintain a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and have that content being beautiful, I believe is what's going to separate the people that do from the people that are just wannabes. I believe, and I say right now, that the greatest falls that you will see will be in terms of what the TV Food Network is doing, the cooking channel, Bravo and Discovery, who have chosen a type of television based exclusively on the entertainment of what I recall or I define as the survivor effect. Their most effective and their highest rated shows are usually based on some kind of competition where somebody is sent home packing or is stripped of their knives or humiliated openly on. I believe that the greatest competition that public television does have today it is not in these networks. They will ultimately falter if they do not find a way to generate an income stream based on the relevance of the media buys that will soon disappear as people have learned how to use the DVR and go past the televised message. Rather, I believe that the biggest enemies to public television are in companies such as Netflix and Amazon who have entered the field of how-to television and they have done so with enormous class and panache. 
for those of you out there who are Netflix executives, I hate you and love you at the same time. You're leading the way on how that type of television should be done, and I intend to get better than you. And what time frame, uh, Nick, for what you just described, what time frame are you looking at? I believe the major changes will take place uh, immediately. Within the next five years, we will see a completely different scenario what we have right now. Mm -hmm. Me, I need to develop and explain a proper way on how large companies can do business with the Lino production through a distribution via the public television. Public television will be highly restricted. You cannot have a commercial in which a car floats by and you say, hey, this is a beautiful car. Now yours for only $1.99 a month. <laughs> Absolutely forbidden. Yeah. A lot of people in my position would say, why? Oh, poor me. Why don't they change the rules? And I say, you knew what the rules were when you started this game. You came here to play. Now, Daddy, play. So as far as I'm concerned, the true activity is going to be the collection of eyeballs that we can bring to the advertiser. The advertiser needs to look at public television as a fantastic place where their brand can be recognized as a supporter of a fantastic series of shows. The actions that will take place in aggrandizing the connection and the sales of the product will take place on a digital platform on a series of customized videos by the stars of public television that now will find their ability of continuing the conversation on a commercial way outside of the airways of television or the digital distribution of the show, but rather within the digital platforms such as Instagram, Facebook, and the various websites of this large corporation who are now going to find themselves with real human beings speaking human language and talking about products that they love. And the public ultimately will be thankful because we are tired of being treated like the dummies that we are every time we look at a commercial where the best thing that there is in there is total confusion. But then again, I'm somewhat passionate about this thing, and I could be totally wrong. <laughs> Understood. Yet it's a very clear vision, uh, and it makes perfect sense in the context of both public television, advertising, and the content itself. So when thinking about that, Nick, what advice would you offer to young people um, facing all manner of challenges, the things that you yourself went through for many years, uh, in fact, to pursue what they love and not just a paycheck? Don't be a paycheck player, number one. I will tell you a story about a window, a window that's in the kitchen in my house. When I bought this house that I live in, gorgeous home by the way, I didn't have the money to pay for it. The only reason why I was given the house is because my credit ratings were so high, as I never squelched or defaulted on a bill in my whole life, that the bank was none but too happy to loan me the money and I was none but too happy to receive it and use it. This particular window in the kitchen, right in front of my sink with a view in the garden in the back, was a point of contention between me and my wife. She wanted me to get a small window that we could afford. I wanted to get a window that would be representative of the things that I would be able to afford in the future. I wanted a window that would give me a view of this gorgeous garden that I had planned for me, so that every morning when I wake up, I realize why life is beautiful. I was not buying the window with the money that I had on hand. I was buying the window with the money that would eventually make because I needed to get that window. The window was purchased on a credit card and almost knocked the limit off of the credit card. And every day in the morning when I step downstairs and I make coffee and I feed the kittens that are my best friends right now, I look at the window sipping on my coffee and saying to myself, what a beautiful sight. So to all who are listening to me now, don't be paycheck players. 
be careful about the slavery that it is the bare minimum and what's necessary. Make an effort to increase the risk-reward ratio for yourself and take chances because if you don't do it while you're young and when you can recuperate from the losses that will occur and they will occur, losing is part of the game. Accept that as a part of life. And when it does come, pick everything up, take your toys and start all over again. Because once you walk off the field and you allow yourself to be defeated and you accept defeat as the true constant of life, you will have lost the most beautiful thing. And what's most beautiful about each and every one of us is a form of delusion that mingled with optimism allow us to see the future for what it can be versus what it is. And that is what I embrace. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Art Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. Now return to our Innovate CSR interview with managing editor Robert Rim and Chef Nick Stellino, supporter of the American Red Cross. And unfortunately, so often the fear of loss causes paralysis, especially in young people who may want to pursue the conservative route, uh, what they know and not what they love. Uh, so when talking about loss, and, and this brings us to the American Red Cross, actually from Windows to the Red Cross, how did you learn about the organization? When did you first become involved with it? I, there was another accident. There was a, a friend of mine who reached out to let me know that his sister had taken over this post at the Red Cross, and she really needed help in raising funds. Uh, would I be interested in helping her? Uh, Marsha was her name, still is as a matter of fact, a great friend of mine and a fantastic person. Uh, she invited me to attend the event. The event was called the Red Tie Affair. It took place at the Luxury Hotel in Santa Monica. Um, when I started with them, they were barely doing $50,000 in a uh, single dinner. Uh, and then I put in place all the skills that I've learned and all the schemes that I have mastered as I learned how to raise funds for a TV show in public television. I brought a company like CNA Sugar, Domino Sugar, uh, World Finder Foods, uh, Electrolux, Frigidaire, uh, even Fiat to donate products, money. And by the time I was done with them, and for four consistent years, uh, we had donation in a single dinner in excess of 400000 The most we did one year was $505,000. And you described it as another accident. And so I'll ask you a straightforward question, which perhaps isn't so straightforward, Nick, but are these life turns truly accidental? In, to me, those they were. I, I did not seek them. I did not search them. Uh, they came into my life and they became transformed into something else. Um, it would be so much easier for me to tell you that I had such clear vision of what the future would be, that I walked unafraid 
uh, and uh, calculating into each of these opportunities. It would be so lovely if I was that guy. No, I walked, I saw, and then I saw what it could be. And once I saw what it could be, I took a dive. Let me give an example. You'll see it right now. If you go to my website right now, www.nickstellino.com, you will see a video on the opening page, and below the video, a click for you to download a free copy of my new cookbook, Cooking with Nick Stellino. I have pledged one million copies of my electronic cookbook, Cooking with Nick Stellino, to help public television. To do so, I bought out all my partners so that I would have complete control over the destiny of this electronic publication. And people say to myself, what, are you stupid? Why don't you make more money if you just maybe charge a dollar a piece? And I say, no, I want a million copies. I want these copies to go out there. And all that I want for this to happen is that when public television comes calling with a fundraiser, just give them a little extra money more. Just because this book is value of $14.95, this is what I sell it day in and day out, you got it for free. And you know what? Your public television station could really use the extra money because they need your help since they're self-funded and the federal government no longer helps them as they used to in the past. And they need your help to stay on the air. It would give me great joy to know that this act of mine has allowed the stations to go on successfully for many years ahead. And I hope that this selfish act of mine at this point will inspire other great chefs who just like me possess their own uh, content and to donate to the public television network in a way that we will become participant in ensuring a future for what I refer to as a network that still operates as the network of choice for people who want to be free and live free unencumbered by the compromises of the business world. And so often when people know more about a nonprofit, uh, a major organization like uh, public television, public broadcasting, uh, the more they know, the more they want to get involved, the more they want to give, uh, which has been shown repeatedly. So it's wonderful to hear that direction. And so back to my question about accidental, if not accidental, would you say that the key factor was being, uh, was remaining open to what may happen instead of uh, following a prescribed vision for your life? I believe that as much as I gained from these opportunities, I must have lost tremendously for many opportunities that came my way and I was too stupid to recognize what the potential would be. So I, I love nothing more, uh, two things that I love to do. One, I love to talk because I love the sound of my own voice. <laughs> two, I love to give myself an enormous amount of compliments because I'm my best friend and I love that. But in this particular case, if I was to tell you, yes, I saw this, it would be a complete failure. But if I mention the name Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor, and uh, his, uh, uh, his writings of almost 2,000 years ago, uh, I would like to confess to everybody that when I get up every morning, I step outside in my garden and I yell out this recitation. And it goes something like this. When you rise up in the morning, think of what a privilege it is to be alive, to breathe, to think, to enjoy, to love. This, to me, is the primary rule of survival every day. And these are the things that I ask God every day to give me the freedom and the ability to continue. If you can embrace each of the small instants described by just one word and understand how the one word affects all these different other activities that interlude, intercome within the context of the day, 
you will no longer be afraid. Whatever comes to you that tries to block you from where you want to go becomes nothing more than a minor inconvenience that needs to be dealt with. The moment you have the mind flow, everything is beautiful. And I believe that in my maturity now, in my late 50s, for the first time, I have grown this confidence that allows me to believe that for the time that is still granted to me to be a productive member of society, I can do things that might change the world in a better space. And I would like to achieve that if God give me, uh, gives me the opportunity to do so. In the end, I also need to be lucky. A lyrical sentiment that surely comes across so visibly in your TV shows. Did you have any experiences growing up that led to your commitment to the Red Cross to helping those suffering during emergencies? Yes, there was a horrible earthquake in Sicily in 1963, if I remember correctly, or was it 1968? 68. I remember uh, this, this earthquake was so horrifying that it wiped off the map three small towns, completely gone. I remember uh, myself, as anyone else in Italy, watching the horror through our television, which was to us a fairly new thing, 24 hours a day, and long before the helicopters from the Italian army arrived, long before the uh, help from the local American base down in Naples arrived, there were volunteers with spray-painted Red Cross on their t-shirts helping everybody get out. And that was the first time that I realized that the Red Cross is something more than just a name that rhymes. The Red Cross is a state of mind where people far better than me want to sacrifice their own well-being so that they can help others who are so deeply in trouble that at that moment they can use a smile with the same intensity in which they can use the air that they breathe. And when I was given the opportunity to do something, I know that the people who will be recipient of this money that I have raised for them will never know my name and they don't need to. They don't need to care who I am and what I did, but I will know that some people in deep, deep need of help, at the moment that they needed the most, will have that help, and I was somewhat participant in making that happen. That, to me, is better than cash in the bank. And how has your involvement with the Red Cross shaped you personally and professionally, Nick? Well, I believe that... Uh, the way that I am, I was going to have a straight path to hell. Now I think I could <laughs> for a wonderful condo in purgatory. <laughs> I'm, la I'm laughing. Uh, <laughs> a wonderful condo in purgatory is not a phrase that I expected to hear. I could have stayed up all night thinking of phrases I'd hear today, and that would not have been one of them. <laughs> but going further with my question, um, Let's just talk a little bit more about, uh, about your involvement with the Red Cross and how it did, in fact, shape you uh, across your life. But across my life, uh, I, hmm. I'm not ignoring you. I'm trying to think in depth of what it has done. Is it always uh, in the back of your mind? Do you, do you gear your activities toward um, looking outward, looking beyond yourself, uh, helping others? Uh, you know, it's this kind of thing. It's, it's really a mindset of, again, looking beyond yourself, looking outward, helping others. Well, the easy answer would be yes. And it would be so hugely popular. And I would be loved by all. Well, I'm not looking for easy or popular, am I? Well, this is not going to be easy and this is not going to be popular. Yeah. 
uh, I am fully aware that the intensity that has taken me so far into the achievement of my success uh, was the result of a series of skirmishes which while were not physical, trust me when I tell you, I did whatever I need to do to get here. I believe I needed to give something back to society in general to justify the success that has aggrandized my pockets, has given me a life beyond my belief, and the fact that uh, I have a certain sense of guilt that after having achieved all this, what have I done to help others who need? So this sentiment, the more successful I became, the more it stayed with me. And the Red Cross allowed me to like myself and forgive myself, not because of the men that I've become, but because now I believe that I can be better, and I've seen it. And I think that really is, uh, I think of myself as a sinner uh, who embraces everything that he's done wrong, and while I cannot change what is that I've messed up in the past, I can be better for what is ahead of me, and the Red Cross allow me to be that better person. So the intensity that I use in accumulating money and producing television series ultimately became the same intensity that I brought into the organizing of this huge fundraiser event in Los Angeles called the Red Tie Affair, and the success that, that came of it was in a certain way my need to to ask forgiveness for all the things that I did wrong. So I guess this is the true story. And we appreciate your sharing that. And in thinking further about the Red Cross, uh, what does the future hold for the Red Cross? Um, what are your suggestions about how young people, and in fact all people, can become involved with the organization? I believe that young people should look at a company that has uh, uh, an unblemished record uh, for almost a century at this point of helping others. Uh, you know, we want to look and see where is that our resources go, what do we do with this, and the Red Cross is always the first armed response in any natural disaster, and by arm I don't mean armed with the weapons, but armed with all the helps and supplies that are needed to help the people in the location. But they also have some fantastic uh, programs, especially for the elderly. Here in Los Angeles, in Santa Monica especially, the chapter that organized this, one of the things that really touched me was the fact that there is a senior program where some of the seniors who are too ill to be able to fend for themselves, to go to the market, get their meals delivered and completely paid for by the Red Cross. Um, now, I am in excellent shape. Uh, I know that as I age, I will feel the pains that my body will give me. And uh, I am still ahead of the game because I'm surrounded by people that love me. But I wonder many times, what would it be to be alone, in pain? And just seeing the person walking through the door, bringing you the food, a smile, a caress, a touch. And to think that I was able to provide a little bit of the funds that bring that moment together, it gives me great joy. And uh, when you say, did I think of this the moment that I choose to do? No. It came afterwards when I realized the power that I have had in making things better for the fundraising process and for the ultimate results. And I think that as I succeed more and more in business, I would like to give more and more back. If I do things right, by the time I die, there will not be a penny left to my name. All my assets and resources will be given away to help others. And your sense of gratitude and empathy uh, come across palpably in your shows, in our conversation here. Uh, that seems to have grown over the years for you. Would that be fair to say? Well, you're making me sound too nice. Uh, you should also, <laughs> in effect, that uh, I make a fearsome warrior. <laughs> and the 
people that have gotten into tussle with me understand the intensity of my purpose and intent, I am not such a nice man. I love the fact that you're painting me as such, and you're great. Next time I have a, a moment of doubt, I think I'll call you directly now that I've got your Skype account. Well, my phone will be busy. But I'll, I'll say this. I think that I find that winning by aggression is a failure, a deep failure. Winning by outsmarting, outlasting, or physically beating somebody down, in my opinion, is the beginning of defeat itself. I believe that if God should grant me the gift of what I truly want, I would like to be able to lead men and women to a better system, being in business, uh, being in fundraising for the Red Cross, uh, being in simply teaching things, and to make them see the beauty that there is in sharing a smile with others. I hate pessimism. I hate people that wake up in the morning and say to themselves, oh my gosh, what am I going to do today? It's going to be a horrible day. That they don't see the gift that every breath brings to them. I would like to share these thoughts and make them so popular that other people will come into play and say, you know what, maybe life is not that bad. Because life can be a hell of a lot worse than what it is right now. And trust me, I have seen it. I've seen it in the relatives of mine who have fallen sick, who have died from cancer. I've seen what it's like to be stripped of every dignity that once used to make the man or the woman that you were. And until that moment comes, while you have the strength, while you have the drive, while you have this life purpose that can make a change, what are you going to do about it? Just stand around and walk and show everybody how cool you look in your brand new clothes? That to me is a waste of time. And on that note, Nick, from Fierce Warrior to Gifts and Optimism, thank you for joining us. The best way to reach Nick is through nickstelino.com and visit redcross.org to support the American Red Cross. Click on the webpage links above this podcast for further details. Nick, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.